When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And today, this is our What's the Headline podcast. How you doing, man? Man, I'm doing great. Doing great. Got some some time outside. We got that heat wave on the East Coast. Uh, man, some good playoff basketball. Life is good. Yeah, man. I had on my Kawhi t-shirt today. Uh, pulled it out. You know, it's my guy. Yeah. And you don't wear that t-shirt unless you really need the win, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I rarely wear that T-shirt. You know, I wear that when I'm playing with my sons in basketball. Okay. When I need to win against them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today, you know? Yeah, I feel you. I have a uh, special Troy Polamalu, you know, Steelers jersey that uh, I only wear when I believe it's within their reach and I really need them to win. So right. I feel you. And I, I know, you. are you a Sixers fan or no? You know, some years I've followed closer than others. You know, this year, I have to admit, I've been very fair, fair weather with it, but it's not out of apathy. It's more just like a whole lot's been going on. But um, now, like, I'm buckled in. Round two, uh, today did not go so well, although they put up a gallant comeback. I think from here on out, I'll uh, watch. And, and if they, you know, if they lose to the Hawks in this round, it's not my fault. Where to soak the shocker. <laughs> no, I think, I think it will be good. They yeah. came back ferociously at the end, put mm-hmm. some pressure on them, so it's cool. Yeah, man. You know, we got an exciting show today. I'm excited. Um, there is news that I think is going to make hip hop fans rejoice. And there's been some false starts. We've heard this news before, but there's reason to believe it. And that is that De La Soul's music is likely going to be made available on streaming platforms in the relatively near future. Um, first of all, before we get into it, can you think of any catalog by a major artist? that is missing that is, is bigger than de la soul's catalog and the, the cultural impact all that no i mean i really can't there were years of course where you know jay-z kept everything exclusive to title um there was a period of time when an artist that i really liked neil young peter gabriel there were guys and and women that that avoided the platforms um but nothing like de la especially with you know it's not obviously it's not their whole catalog but it's the albums they released with tommy boy which I think hip hop fans would agree is, is, you know, not only some of their best work, but some of the most important hip hop albums that have come out period. Yeah. And so uh, in 2019, and we'll get into this, you know, we heard that they were going to put out the, the, the catalog. Tommy boy had repurchased his catalog from Warner and it seemed like they were about to do a deal, but, but it didn't happen. Um, but here we are in 2021. What's changed? So we got news last week. The catalog sold for a reported $100 million to the Reservoir Group, um, which is a company that has been acquiring uh, music publishing rights. Am I correct on that? Yeah, they, they bought Chrysalis. Uh, yeah. records, Gangstar. Like, you know, Gangstar, Billy Idol, some really great artists on that. Yeah. Rapping Forte. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, their executive vice president or senior vice president, I don't know what the what current title is, is Faith Newman, which is, you know, hip hop royalty. Um, that's the woman who not only 
you know, signed Nas to Greenlight Illmatic and put out the album that, you know, Large Professor and MC Search and others had kind of presented to her in demo form. But she's very responsible for bringing Big L to Columbia. Um, she worked with LL Cool J, Slick Rick, Jamiroquai, um, even Miles Davis. So she had 10 years at, at Def Jam before going to Columbia. And I mean, just a true, um, you know, hip hop head, Philadelphia native, I believe. And the fact that somebody that's helped bring great art to the masses, you know, throughout the 90s and late 80s is here doing it again in the streaming era. Um, that's that's exciting to me. Yeah, you know, she's the EVP of creative for them. And the interesting thing about Reservoir, I had never heard of them before this. Had you heard of them? I'd seen them in a headline. Maybe it was Chrysalis or or something else. I saw them acquiring something that was a little bit peripheral to what you and I talk about. And I made note of the name, um, but not like this. Now we ain't going to forget. Yeah, so they're a SPAC. And, and do you know what that is? No. So a SPAC, it's, it's kind of the new hot investment vehicle. Um, it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And it's basically, so it's basically a way to do an initial public offering, an IPO, um, without all the diligence and, you know, regulations that come with that. So you know, when you're doing an IPO, you have to put together, you know, statements to the public and, you know, all sorts of stuff that's really, really complicated, it takes a long time. It's a really huge legal um, you know, legal process. And what these SPACs do is they allow a company to form and people just raise money uh, and you can make it a public company and just raise uh, with the notion that the SPAC will acquire a company within, I think it's 18 months. And so literally the investors uh, in the public offering have no idea what they're investing in. Typically, they just know that, you know, certain institutional investors are involved, you know, uh, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, whoever it might be. And they trust these organizations enough to say that when you do acquire a company that you eventually take public, we believe it'll be something that is sound and will make money going forward. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that's been around, I think, for a few decades, but it's, it's gotten a lot of activity over the last like 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. It's really heated up, and I haven't seen too many media companies uh, that are SPACs, but uh, Reservoir is becoming that media company. So Chrysalis, their catalog, um, a lot of it is European, a lot of it is UK, um, and so adding Tommy Boy makes them really global because Tommy Boy uh, obviously has got huge impact in the U.S. with hip-hop, but also global with uh, the dance music, so... Mm-hmm. It's an interesting model, and, and yeah, um, I'm curious to see what their next move is. But um, so why, though, do we think that this is going to allow Daylight to finally get on streaming platforms? It's a great question. Um, you know, for years, Daylight, you know, anytime you walked into a record store back in the day, the CDs were there, um, I always found. And that even changed over the last 15 years, um, even before the Best Buys and the big box stores were closing up and condensing their music section and then in the you know in the streaming era de la was was this omission and what the public was told and and i should say um you know i have i have two favorite hip-hop groups gangstar and de la soul and to me i mean shout out to gangstar and what they've done you know following guru's passing but in terms of active hip-hop groups de la i put above all the rest so i followed these guys closely and you know, we were always told that the samples were issues, you know, um, because there were so many of them. 
um, especially on those first two or three albums that De La did, Three Stakes, you know, Three Feet High and Rising, De La Soul is Dead and Balloon Mind State. In 2019, uh, a little over two years ago, we got a lot more information on that. And you had mentioned... Yeah. Oh, you know what? But before we get into that, let, let's break down the history of Tommy Boy first. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I, think it, I think it's important to do that because it's such an iconic label. started by Tom Silverman. I saw that it was started by him, I believe it was like 1981, 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a $5,000 loan from his parents. Uh, I looked it up, and by today's standards, it's, it's like $14,900. He basically bet the entire uh, amount of money on one single, and that was Africa Bambata and the Soul Sign Force Planet Rock. Um, that song takes off, you know, um, coincidentally for me, it's the first time I ever experienced hip hop live. Mm. I was in San Francisco, it was 1982, it was a trip with my mom. And I think it was like Fisherman's Wharf. And we saw these guys dancing to this like music that sounded like Space Age. Yeah. And these dudes were doing robotic, crazy looking moves. And I, I had no idea what either one was, but you know, six months later, I found out that was African Bambada and the song was, was playing a rock. And I, I realized later on that what the guys were doing was breakdancing. So, you know, Tommy Boy has had its, its, its feet in um, music for over 30 years now. But some, mm. what are some of the other um, artists they've had on that label? Yeah, I mean, they, they came out of that. And then by the mid 80s, you start to see Stetsasonic, which is, you know, Brooklyn hip hop group that I feel like is 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 giantly um, underrated by, you know, streaming numbers. And that included Daddy O as the lead MC. And out of that, we got Prince Paul. You and I have spent a lot of time this year, you know, remembering Shock G and Digital Underground. Tommy Boy was the label that signed them to their first album deal. Um, they came in and put out Queen Latifah's first, at least her first album. And I, I want to say one or two after that, um, you know, before she built her own thing and eventually went to Motown. Um, Coolio, you know, which I think is really interesting. Coolio was the hype man in, you know, Dub C and the Mad Circle. And out of that, you know, in the mid 90s, he comes through and goes solo and finds all this, you know, kind of crossover success um you've got house of pain with everlast another artist that came out of ice t's rhyme syndicate rebrands dj lethal danny boy comes out with this um you know we can go naughty on by and nature on. naughty by huge yeah. and again like just to just to say this because naughty by nature was signed to sugar hill and mca put an album out i forget the name right this moment of what they were known as then rebranded came out with some new images in like 1990 91 and the perfect name for the group. And again, found massive crossover success. Um, you know, so that there's that. And then, you know, I mentioned House of Pain later on. Tommy Boy put out Everlast um, solo album with the huge hit, you know, what it's like. Um, but you can go on and on and on. And, and especially for hip hop heads like Planet Rock, there's a history of great, you know, 12 inch joints of artists that maybe not even got an album but put out really interesting stuff. You know, I think a live squad, which was, you know, Tupac's affiliate stretch. Um, there's an artist uptown dope on plastic that, you know, that's classic late eighties hip hop and Tommy boy was right there. And, and, you know, you, you alluded to it a moment ago, but as a company, they always kept their feet um, in dance as well. And then later on kind of got into rock and a little bit of uh, interesting, you know, in recent years, they put out another Prince Paul project, 
uh, Brooke Zill, which also involved uh, Ladybug Mecca from Diggable Planets. Um, so yeah, I mean, Tommy Boy has been incredibly, incredibly active. Are there others in that catalog that really stand to you? No, nah, man, I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, and the, the beautiful thing is they had both critical acclaim and commercial success. And I think at the nexus of that was De La Soul. Mm. Their first album comes out. Uh, I think it, I think it might've gone, um, it, it, you know, it was in the twenties on the just overall album chart. And I think it was top 10 on the, you know, rap R and B chart. And, you know, gigantic single, Me, Myself and I comes out, you know, George Clinton, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, uh, knee, uh, knee Deep Sample, you know, something that Dr. Dre like flipped a couple times later on, but they, they did it in a really happy-go-lucky way. The impact they had, you know, they had, they, they ushered in what was called the Daisy Age. And they were, they were in hip hop guys who were like suburban, living in Long Island, not pretentious, you know, just in it for the fun. And, you know, really very different than the kind of aggressiveness you had with Public Enemy at the time. Um, the really, um, you know, gangster kind of stuff that you were getting from NWA and others. They were a very different um, aspect of hip hop that, you know, brought a lot of people who had not been, you know, familiar with the genre into the party and flipped it. You know, and in fact, we, as you and I know, and, and most, uh, most fans know, it became so big that ultimately they they kind of uh, rejected it themselves and refuted it. And for their next album, literally said De La Soul is dead. Um, yeah. But no less, uh, you know, so and that song, that album, uh, Three Feet High and Rising, produced by Prince Paul, who you and I have interviewed um, within the last year or so, um, had a ton of samples. It had over 100 samples. There's one song that had over 23 samples just by itself. But it was a musical collage of TV shows and skits and like kids music and stuff like that. So, you know, De La really revolutionized hip hop. And then, you know, there's Native Tongues, too. You want to talk about Native Tongues? Yeah, I mean, but even even before getting to that, I, I look at De La a lot like Kendrick. Um, you know, I, I see them as artists that, you know, two of the three guys are from Amityville originally. And then Maceo, um, Plug 3, who's DJ. And also, I feel like deserves a lot of credit for production, especially by the second, third and beyond albums, um, you know, has ties to Brooklyn. And these guys came and they could very, you know, authentically, you know, speak about, you know, tussles and things like that. But they were absolutely a counter to gangster rap and a counter to take yourself too seriously rap. And I'm not saying that's what P.E. is. And what's interesting is in their first few years, they went on tour with both of those groups, PE and NWA. And I just love that idea as a, as a guy who wasn't at shows in 1989 and 90 to imagine a world where they can coexist. And I always just think of De La Soul's music, especially on that first album, just like it's artwork. It's incredibly colorful and far reaching. And, and that idea is true of Native Tongues, um, which is a, you know, a, a super collective that involves De La it involves Queen Latifah, who I mentioned a moment ago. It notably involves a tribe called Quest. Um, the group that is, is very much a part of it that I, I believe came out first was Jungle Brothers. Yeah. Um, and they had that too. And, and that, that characteristic of be yourself, have fun, you know, the tenets of hip hop, of peace, love, you know, understanding fun. It's very much a play in Native Tongues music. And then later on by the, you know, early 90s, you started to add like Black Sheep, Beat Nuts, Leaders of the New School, 
Chia Lee, so on and so forth, Moni Love. Um, but it's, you know, when we talk about super groups and super collectives, even though there was, you could never walk into a store and buy a native tongue CD or a 12 inch single, there are posse cuts. To me, that is the, the closest rival to Wu-Tang for me. Yeah, and they, cha- they changed the sound. I mean, you could hear a sample by, you know, George Clinton. You could hear Hall & Oates. Yeah. You could hear the Turtles. I mean, just the sonic palette was incredible that Prince Paul painted with them. But then also the skits, the skits that they had, you know, and there were multiple. I, I can't remember how many were on Three Feet High and Rising, but I think it was over 20 tracks on, on the album, like 23 or something like that. And a lot of those were skits. They brought a lot of humor, a lot of game shows, um, you know, game show kind of antics. They just really changed the game with how they approached uh, making music. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And every album had its own kind of underlying narrative, which is, again, something that I think we see with the Kendricks and the J. Cools and their album making today. And, you know, Prince Paul, you know, is a mastermind. And I think that he went from this guy who was a teenage prodigy, turntablist and stetsasonic who started to produce more and more of their albums, but was still kind of living under the creative control of the other guys in the group who were much older and from Brooklyn. And by De La, he gets an opportunity to really just go loose. And, you know, I've told Paul this several times, but he's one of my favorite people in hip hop to interview and talk to because his energy is, is playful. It's serious. There's a level of self-deprecation there. And you see that in the group, especially when you start to look at, two and three albums and you're right like game show was a was a was a was a format and i feel like on de la soul is dead it's mirrored after those old you know four-sided you know records of like children's audiobooks um and other aspects there and they just it it made for a, i'll use your term that that i learned from you anyway lean back experience like you can't put on a de la record and just skip right to your favorite song you got to start from the beginning and you're going to finish it yeah, for sure. And there was incredible variety in their catalog. So Three Feet High and Rising is really happy-go-lucky. Um, Daisy, Age by Design, they got a reputation as being hip-hop hippies. And they hated it. Yeah, They hated it. And then, you know, De La Soul's Dead comes and they flipped up their sound. I, I learned just recently that it actually had, it had a, a number of samples on it too. But by the time it was released... Uh, you know, they had started to get a lot of um, claims against them for using samples on the album, the first album, Three Feet High and Rising, without clearing them. Mm. And that will, and we'll get into, you know, the impact that had long term. But one of the things that had in the immediate term was um, De La Soul is Dead. They had to strip, apparently, a lot of the samples from that album because they had taken a similar approach to it. I'm actually curious. I would love to hear like the original versions of those songs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people think that the album suffered sonically. I, it, for me, it's actually been one of my favorites. And one of my favorite stories is I went to uh, this record store and it wasn't Strawberries, but it was in Cambridge. And um, it was like a Thursday or a Friday. And I saw Three Feet High and Rising, or saw uh, De La Soul's Dead was in the window. And I thought it was supposed to come out the following Tuesday. So I went in. And I said, hey, you know, is this album out? And he said, I'm not sure. I said, well, I see it in the window. Can I get it? And so I got it. And then uh, I I guess it was somebody new at the record store because, you know, back in the day when there were record releases, they came out on Tuesdays. But the the record stores would get them on Fridays. There was a spot in New York. I won't won't snitch, but like 
where you could always go as an independent store. You could always go that Friday and get, get stuff like three, four days in advance. So I did that and I was the only dude on campus who had De La Soul's dead for the yeah. weekend, which is dope. Um, but that album was much more soulful, more gritty. You had songs like um, Saturday and Biddy's in the BK Lounge. And, you know, really it was more, um, I don't want to say traditional, but it was definitely, you know, a lot more, like I said, soulful and gritty. And then you had um, a balloon mind state, which is your favorite, right? You want to talk about that? Uh, of the moment. Yeah, I go back and forth between those two albums. And balloon mind state to me is, is kind of the one that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and to me, I mean, I'm somebody who, who loves jazz and my love of jazz was, was happening at the same time as my love of hip hop. So, you know, they came in with Maceo Parker and some other major players and made this album that I feel like at an MC level, it's incredibly progressed from the first two albums. I mean, um, Dave and Postanus are talking about some heavy duty stuff. I look at a song like you know, I am, I be. And to me, that is one of the most beautiful records in the world. Like, you know, you're talking about the sun going or the light going out on the moon. Like to me, that's, that's environmentalism. There's a lot of talk about, you know, race and expectation and, and, and family. And it's, that is a hugely evolved record. And that was the last one they made with Prince Paul. And for anyone that loves that album, I, I really recommend um, the What Had Happened Was podcast with Open Mike Eagle and Prince Paul season one because that episode alone where paul talks about a group and a producer that are that love each other i mean paul mentored these guys but they're diverging um it was just really powerful and, and to go back then and listen to the music but therein lies the rub i mean you better have you better have the cd or the vinyl or or you know youtube to get it and i think I don't know about you, but so often for me, I'm, I'm so used to just relying on my phone or relying on my computer these days. And I do feel that that's been uh, a giant, you know, snub to De La Soul. Yeah, yeah. And I want to double down on your shout out about Open Mike's podcast because th that episode is just phenomenal. Like just a great listen. You know, the, the other thing about that album is they, they started to go away from samples a little bit. I mean, there was there was obviously some big ones like, um, you know, uh, Break a Dawn with um, with the Michael Jackson. You can't help it sample. Mm -hmm. But there were other songs like, you know, um, you know, like Patty Duke. Yeah. Where they had live band and it felt like a James Brown track. And obviously they had Maceo Parker, who was uh, you know, a big part of James Brown's band but they took it to a whole different level musically and it was a radical departure even from De La Soul is Dead. And then after that, you go to Stakes is High. And for a lot of people, before, before they even knew it, that was their introduction to Dilla. You know, you got songs mm -hmm. like the actual, you know, title track, Stakes is High, which is still to this day, one of my favorite Dilla tracks ever. You got songs like The Business, you know, um, Common, like just, you know, Killing It. There's a lot of really, really, dope tracks on that and that one is very different than the other one so just the breadth of their catalog you know i'll say that before they got on itunes the beatles were the biggest act that was not in the digital space and it was a big deal when they got on itunes that's right um you know and apple did a whole commercial around it it was a gigantic deal and part of what made the Beatles great is just the, the evolution of their sound over time. You know, they went from She Loves You, Yeah, 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 to like Hey Jude and, 
you know, Lucy in the really Sky with Diamonds. Yeah, really, yeah. right. Sergeant Pepper's all, all, all the complicated music they got into. And I would say, I would argue that if hip hop has a Beatles, it's De La Soul. Yeah. So <laughs> I, um, I, I believe it was a writer and I can't, I wish I could credit who, who said it first, but I spoke to Tom Silverman two years ago about Three Feet High and Rising. And he says it, that he loves the comparison of that to Sgt. Pepper. And, and you're not saying the same thing. You're comparing groups. And I wholeheartedly agree. The evolution is, is incredible. And I feel like that evolution is still going into today with, you know, some of the music. I mean, De La put out a joint, you know, last year commenting on the then president and, you know, they continue to evolve with the times really, really well. Yeah. So that catalog is the Tommy Boy catalog. Masterful. Um, Real quick, though, there yeah. are there are two other albums that they made with Tommy Boy, which is important to talk about, too. Um, they made the AOI albums, um, you know, which was art of a fi- art. What, what is, intelligence, intelligence yeah. Yeah. yeah and that of course i mean you think you and i spent some time on the last episode talking about comebacks um they were at that point you know at least three or four years removed from stakes is high um i feel like Dela got a lot of credit um you know as black star and most deaf talib quali you know there was a whole new movement common is rising to form and all of these guys are crediting de la as you know, they're OG uncles and, and they're making appearances on a lot of those different albums like Reflection Eternal. Um, they're working with the raucous guys, even though they didn't sign. And then they came back with AOI, the first one, which had Ooh on it, which was, you know, a massive comeback record. Um, and then they came with the second AOI Bionics, which I believe has um, Trying People on it, which I, I, Questlove put me onto that record years ago. And they asked Quest, like, What's a song that can move you to tears? And he put that one on. And again, you want to talk about a group that continues to evolve and hit you not just in a record that can make you dance like, ooh, but a record that can affect you here and here. And, and De La does that as well as anybody. And they never pander and they never really play themselves out, in my opinion. But yeah, I mean, all told, you've got four plus two, six records with Tommy Boy. And then they go independent. Um, put out the joint at Sanctuary Records back when I believe Beyonce's father was uh, one of the top executives there, Matthew Knowles. And then we, many hip hop fans know since then, they, um, they came back out and, and went to the fans directly. And of course, that's what got the, and, and the Anonymous Nobody album back in 2016. And one of the most successful crowdfunding endeavors ever. Yeah, it was like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or something like that. They, they asked for a quarter, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. You know, AOI, the two AOI albums are, are probably my favorite in the catalog from them. You know, I listened to both of them just like two, three weeks ago, and they're both almost just nonstop, man. So the Daylight catalog is just so incredible. Um, you know, so okay, now there's this catalog that has not been available on DSPs. And, you know, that is the primary way that people consume music now. You know, very few people have CDs. I finally gave up the ghost and sold my 5,000 plus CDs that I bought. You know, Let me down, man. Yeah, yeah, selling, uh, you know, slowly but surely. And streaming, you know, Spotify, Apple, Tidal, uh, YouTube, whatever it might be, is the way that people access music. So. 
And the cool thing about it is that artists are paid every time a song is streamed. Now, yeah. So effectively over half of their catalog and um, you know, likely the most important part of their catalog to most people has been taken off the table for you know during the entire time of the streaming revolution and so it's a big big deal to be able to get their their music on on these platforms and i should say i mean one of the exciting stories for ambrosia day law has rallied against this as a group um you know and i think 2014 there was one day that they said i think it was day law soul is dead day and they put all their albums up for a few hours for free download I mean, De La has always believed that they want the fans to have the music, just put it in the hands of the people. And in 2019, and we can talk about that in a second, they really kind of opened up the war chest and said, look, this is what we're going through. And also we are three guys, and you can add Prince Paul in there too, for, for three of these albums, four guys who have families and livelihoods, and we are not benefiting in the way that pretty much every other artist is. And you've, we've always been fed that, that reason of samples, but you look at it, 1989, Three Feet High and Rising, same year Paul's Boutique by Beastie Boys comes out on Capitol Records. That album's never gone out of print as far as I know, uh, you know, in stores or digitally. You look at the Bomb Squad work with Public Enemy, and they were also pretty sample happy. And I know that was Def Jam, but that stuff has never gone out of print. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in hip hop that seem to hang around beyond whatever legalities may exist. But with De La, it's been different. You want to talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and the, the music has been av available, right? Like it's on YouTube and people can get it there, but the quality of Fidelity is not there. The presentation's not the same. You just don't get the same level of cachet that you would have with it being on the streaming services. But um, you're saying, talking about their catalog and, and, and staying relevant for all this time. Yeah, I think part of that is because of just the diversity of sound that they had. When you go back and listen to their music, it doesn't sound dated, you know, and uh, like AOI, the AOI albums especially sound, they could come out today and sound just mm -hmm. like, you know, and be some of the best stuff that's released today. I think that's part of why they've been able to stay relevant is because they did evolve so much and because they were so authentic to themselves. A lot of music that you listen to from past eras starts to sound like caricatures. Yeah, people just really weren't, you know, they're performing. And I think that's a big part. Also, De La, and you've mentioned this many times, is one of the, the best live performers there is too. And that keeps uh, people engaged with the music as well. Plus, they were also very sparing, you know, that they they, they they did put out music, especially in those early years, like every couple of years or so, every two or three years, but it wasn't overload. So they always left you wanting more. Yeah, I always, you know, credit them as most one of or probably the most consistent group um, with most catalogs. There's one album or two that that kind of wavers a bit. And with De La, you know, especially, you know, those first six albums, people love the grind date. I played it recently. It holds up really well. You know, that's seven and the anonymous nobody. You know, I think that was a really, really good album. Grammy nominated in the adult contemporary catalog or category. Um, I, I have no faults with that album. Um, so I think, you know, we talk about Outcast or, you know, we talk about Tribe. I can look at Black Moon. I think that that De La's catalog, you, you step up to the plate that many times and you've never, 
you've never chased your fans away. You've never let people down is massive, especially in hip hop. Yeah. So in the early to mid O's, Tom Silverman sells his catalog to Warner. Um, by 2017, I believe, or you know, somewhere around then, uh, Warner is, uh, because I think of the, the Warner Media uh, merger, or the, the, the purchase by AT&T, they have to start to divest of some assets and they start to sell catalog. And so Tom comes back and buys his Tommy Boy catalog again. This time, you and I get pretty connected with them. They're putting yeah. out uh, music by Sheik Luch, um, yeah, Method over... Man, uh, The Meth Lab, um, Sadat X, Sadat X, Brookzill that you mentioned yeah. earlier, and those are all artists that are like you know core to our fans, core to us, and so we become really, I think, very much partners to them. You know, there's yeah. a lot, there's a great camaraderie. Um, we're working with a couple of people in, in the company specifically. Um, and we email with them probably once a week or so. So yeah. we're very, very connected to them. At the same time, the chatter starts to arise that, huh, now maybe since it's back in Tom's hands, um, they can resolve the issues that have been outstanding with Daylon. And so there was a couple of things. One is that the use of the samples um, a lot of the samples weren't cleared and it resulted in lawsuits. And like we've talked about before, the problem with not clearing samples up front is that in addition to the money you have to pay, you're subject to negotiating with them the percentage of the song that they own. Because when uh, you sample a song, you have to give up a certain percentage of your, your publishing, depending on how prominent the sample is. You know, so I would think, so, you know, one of the biggest ones is, um, Every breath, the uh, the I'll be missing you, the, the yeah. Biggie song, you know, rumored that they had to give up 100 percent of the publishing because it's so, it, you know, the entire song is based on that Sting song, Every Breath You Take. So, uh, but when you haven't cleared it, when you clear it in advance, a lot of times you can negotiate. It'll be five percent, ten percent, twenty percent, something reasonable like that. If you don't do it, then you're basically held hostage, and you know it's often 50 percent or greater, sometimes 100 percent. And with the number of samples that you got on the Daylaw albums, if a lot of them haven't been cleared, then basically you don't own any of the publishing when all is said and done. So part of what they needed to do was to rectify the sample issue, pay the money that was owed, do all the negotiations, all that stuff. I'm not sure where that sits. But the second thing is that the contracts, um, the way that they were done, gave Daylaw sold 10% of the royalties and 90% went to Tommy Boy. Now, the thing is, these guys signed their contract with Tommy Boy as teenagers, and this was in the, the late 80s. Late 80s, And so there was no streaming back then. What record contracts have, though, is kind of catch-all paragraphs that say, you know, for other forms of media, the, the split is going to be this, you know. And likely, their, their split, even for, like, CD sales and, you know, record sales was probably in that 90-10 range because independent label um you know they're taking big risks they're putting a lot of money on the table and so they want to reap the rewards but the, the thing about it is to recoup so i'll break it down so in a record company agreement you get an advance as an artist and most people think oh wow they signed a you know half a million dollar deal signed a million dollar deal they got a million dollars in their pocket that's not the way it works with your advance, you have to uh, pay to record the album. So you're recording the album. 
sometimes videos are handled separately, you know, any travel, uh, any meals, like everything comes out of that advance. So a lot of times, uh, depending on how extravagant people are with the recording process, recording process, and back then, you know, you, you could walk away with nothing from your advance. Um, on top of that, the advance is that it's an advance. It's not a payment that's, that's free. You have to actually pay it back. A loan, yeah, yeah, and you pay it back from you pay it back from music being sold, but it's not paid back from all of the music being sold. So if you if your if your um, advance is a half a million dollars and you make a million dollars in record sales, you're not paying back the advance from the million dollars you're paying it back from your percentage of your royalties. So if, if your royalty percentage is 10% and you've sold a million dollars in record royalties, then you've only paid back $100,000 of your $500,000 advance. So even though the record company is rolling in dough at this point, you're still owing the label for you know the advance. And so that's why it's so hard for artists to make money off their recordings. The house always because, wins. Yeah, the house always wins. It's like you're, you, you know, you're constantly battling and you're only recouping from a very small percentage. And that's why most artists make their money from live performances and merchandise. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, especially at that time, you know, a lot of labels would then use that debt as leverage to, hey, let's do another one. We'll wipe that clean. And you know, it keeps you in business together. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. And, you know, but also the flip side is that an artist that is successful for a couple of albums, two or three albums, is often able to go back to the table and renegotiate and wipe that debt clear and then get a much stronger royalty, get bigger advances, yeah. like and all that. And then they get, they, they get wiser about how they use that advance money. They record the album for cheap, the videos are cheap, and they, they take some money and put it in their pocket too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that happens to uh, newer artists that you know aren't as experienced and don't have the leverage, but you know also these record companies, like I said, you know ninety nine percent of albums don't go gold or platinum, more right. than ninety nine percent. So they're taking big bets. Most of them they're going to lose, and it's the the ones that actually hit that kind of covers all the rest. Yeah, and I mean in nineteen eighty eight, you know from what I understand, De La was signed to a production deal, you know, and they put out. Uh, well, the first single was Plug Tune and I want to say, or Potholes. It, it's escaping me right now. The, Myself the, and I, I believe. Before that, even in 88, one of the oh, first, okay, yeah, 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 the yeah, first yeah. video, I, yeah. I think you're 100% right. Yeah. And it did so well that Tommy Boy stepped to the table with an album. But as you and I both know, especially at those times, I mean, an artist, you know, unless you were NWA or Two Live Crew and going out the trunk with it, and I don't think De La Soul made that kind of music that you could sell as a as a lifestyle play like that um you needed a label and um i think it was very much in in tommy you know in in the company's favor when when they did that deal and even though three feet high and rising is certified gold at least um it's not been a profitable album for the group and that's heartbreaking you know yeah. one of the one of the things i'll remember from all of this is is joe budden you know crying on uh, state of the culture like literally moved to tears thinking about you know de la soul walking so he could run so to speak yeah so you know they come back to tommy boy uh and the samples aren't right and the money's not right so at this point, though, a lot of time has passed. Uh, there was apparently a lot of bitterness um, before, but they sit down and they try to get back 
at the table and and hammer out a deal. And you and I played a role in this. You know, we we were, we were cool with the Tommy Boy folks. We're also very cool with uh, De La Soul's management. And we made a couple of introductions. You know, uh, there, there were some new executives at Tommy Boy who had not been part of the process, so didn't have uh, the negative uh, associations of, of the past. And it was, a, it was a clean slate. And they sat down and, you know, started making progress. And enough so to make an announcement uh, they got to a point where they announced that the music was coming out the next day on DSPs. And then what happened? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here too. And I, um, in the middle of all of that, I was contacted by the label um, to help do some press surrounding De La Soul. And I was honored. I mean, for reasons I've already stated here. And by virtue of Tommy Boy, I got on the phone with the three members of De La Soul, as well as Prince Paul separately, as well as Tom Silverman separately and talked about the significance of this music coming out, talked about the significance of three feet high and rising turning at that time 30. Um, and I thought ever, all systems are a go. And, you know, I will say it took me a minute to get Dela De on the phone. And at the end of the conversation, um, you know, the, the group, it was clear that there was not everything was ironed out. Mm. um and then take it back over to you you know what yeah. where so then that, yeah. that next day comes and the music is not there and de la takes it to social media and they let the fans know what's going on they actually went on a press tour they were on um i remember that the, the sway one vividly and i think drink champs too right where yes. they really broke down the economics of their deal and stated very transparently why they weren't you know, happy with it. And they said that they encouraged the fans that, you know, before Dave Chappelle did this with Netflix recently, De La Soul were the ones that said, listen, if the music's on DSPs, don't listen to it. You're not supporting us. You're supporting the label. And so then Tommy Boy decided not to uh, release the music. I mean, the campaign went big too. There was, there was like a no smoking sign with the Tommy Boy logo and Questlove was, you know, a huge supporter of it. Pete Rock, like I know on my Instagram account, I saw a lot of the folks that I followed participating in that. Um, and yeah, it, it never reached the DSPs as planned. And um, yeah, it got really interesting. I, Sway tried to get Tom Silverman and De La together. And I believe at the last minute, uh, Tom declined. And yeah, and, and that kind of takes us to today. It seemed like things just were what they were. Well, I know- wait, before that, though, you know, we, we laid out kind of what Dela's argument was. Oh, yeah. Um, why don't you break down, you know, in defense? Yeah, of I, I, when I saw that, I um, certainly, you know, I applauded Dela for having a vehicle that didn't exist to them let alone 1989, but not even in 2002 or 2004, whenever they fell out. Um, I looked at it and I thought this is a little bit weird because I've watched some of the same folks that are align, you know, aligning with De La and, and praising them in this campaign look at other executives that have publicly said, I own my, you know, I own my artist masters in publishing. Um, and we celebrate them. And I know me as a fan, like I look at Rap-A-Lot Records, legendary. I mean, I love Houston hip hop. I love the Ghetto Boys. But Jay Prince has been very transparent that he, you know, the house always wins and he's putting up the money 
So he wants to, he wants to benefit the most in time. Um, you know, we've watched cash money records, um, you know, which, which I think a lot of folks, especially younger than me, celebrate as one of the dynasties of the 2000s. Um, you know, the Williams brothers have had countless financial allegations against them, especially from producers, former artists. You look at Manny Fresh, which I think did more for cash money than, than Prince Paul may have done with Tommy Boy. And he's had a very, you know, on again, off again relationship over finances there. I thought that it was a really kind of convenient argument. And again, that doesn't mean I don't support De La, but some of the same folks that are fighting that fight aren't doing it elsewhere. Um, you know, and that that's existed for years. The other thing I'll say about Tommy Boy, and you alluded to it a moment ago, whereas a lot of labels get on the, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants in the, in the eighties and nineties, and then move on to other things. I could say jive records, like, you know, jive put out cool Modi, Houdini, tribe too short e40 you know in the le- in the later years of jive i know they were still in business with ugk but they went and they they did you know britney spears and backstreet boys tommy boy stayed true to its brand and in 2016 i don't know that there was a lot of labels that were putting out sadat x records produced by diamond d and pete rock or brooke zill records which is you know, uh, a bilingual project made of hip hop legends across the ocean from each other. I just think that, you know, if you want to make that argument, make it everywhere and don't make it specifically. Um, That being said, I, I, and I say this, you know, with all the precursor you have, Tommy Boy made some mistakes in this and that is abundantly clear. Um, But I've always looked at that label and, you know, the fact that Prince Paul has remained with them for basically the entirety of my life. Stetsasonic's first album is 86. And he continues to do some business with, with Tommy Boy at some point. That to me says that while this situation went sour, they're clearly not treating everyone like this. Royce the Five Nine has openly stated they gave him a million dollar advance and he never put an album out there. And also, I mean, this label, and, and there's an executive team, obviously under Tom Silverman, Monica Lynch, legendary A&R, Dante Ross, you know, on and on and on you can go. But if you, you really come at this label, this label gave us some really great artistry that I don't know if others would have stood in to put out. That's just my two cents. Maybe I'm. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And most of the things that they were guilty of were things that, like you said, were common practice in the industry. Yeah. Uh, But that being said, I think that you know, there've been a lot of movements that have happened uh, over the last four or five years, starting with the Me Too movement, uh, or maybe even with, with Occupy Wall Street. But Me Too uh, really identified, you know, really heinous things that were going on and changed people's perspective on something that was accepted as just, you know, the way that it was, you know, prior to that. And then obviously the movement that happened last summer after the murder of George Floyd where people, you know, openly talked about things that were, again, accepted and just, you know, taken as what it was. And I think that, you know, the DeLa thing, and not to, you know, say these things are equivalent, but there are gross uh, social economic injustices that are built into the music industry that, that needed to be highlighted. And I think a fairer approach would be to, to go back to that recoupment example I was saying, is to recoup the money from all the, 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 you know, all the revenue coming in on both sides 
and then start to pay once once the the costs have been covered from all revenue. Yeah. Then start to pay that ninety ten or, or whatever you know. So I think then you still get the upside as a label. It's just not egregiously. So um, and you never, I mean, you never know, like I look at labels and you never know what's going to blossom. This is, you know, this is, this is an adventure. And I encourage, I encourage artists in 2021, be independent, build up a movement, put that music out yourself. If somebody wants to be in business with you, it has to make sense for you to change your stream in 1988, 89, that didn't exist. So, you know, the fact that, 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 that they put this group out probably thought it was going to sell X amount. It turned out that it was much more successful. I don't fault them for that in a contract. 90-10 is, is, is crazy. But to come back to the table and do things that way, knowing that social media exists was really tone deaf. And, and knowing also now that you've got six albums and you know how much money the group has made. Yeah. Like, that's the time to renegotiate. For most artists, it happens after album two or so. Yeah. With six albums on the table that have made a ton of money, had tons of impact, have burnished the brand of the label have, to attract other artists to that label. You just got you, you got to renegotiate, you know? Yeah. And, and one of the saddest things to hear, and Daylaw said this in those interviews, is that every time Daylaw came to the table, they were fed an answer on why these albums weren't profitable. But if you look at Tommy Boy's catalog, you made the point during this conversation I think De La Soul's catalog is the centerpiece, especially at an album level of this label's catalog. So to say it's not profitable, but also use that to propel the brand, there's a giant disconnect there. Um, especially, and, and you know, you can maybe make that argument about the first album or the second album, but by the time you get to the AOIs or the time you look at Balloon Mind State, the fact that these albums that are not 100 samples are not on DSPs that the group can benefit from is a is a is a travesty yeah so here we are in 2021 reservoir buys the tommy boy catalog for 100 million dollars the reasons why i think that it's real this time are a couple so first of all we already talked about faith newman and her involvement she is a person who has as much credibility in hip-hop as an executive as anyone given what she's worked on um the the, the company she's been associated with everything that she's done for the culture. She understands the, what the legacy of De La Soul represents and what it can mean to that company. The second thing, though, is ties back into what, what they're looking to do as a company. And I mentioned the, the SPAC thing. And so they're clearly progressive in their approach. And if you're going to go public, having all of your catalog be available on streaming platforms is, is going to be necessary for you to extract as much revenue from that catalog. And so it's in their best interest financially to get that up and running with the money they would raise from an IPO. I believe it would be enough to wipe out whatever sample clearance, you know, debts they have pay the artists, you know, make them happy and, and get everything up and running. So I think that, you know, those are the things that will allow this to actually be real this time. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I really do. I think with that kind of power, the fact that $100 million speaks a lot. And I knew that it would take, it's going to take some money to clear these samples, um, if, if that's one of the issues. And I, I do believe wholeheartedly, this is coming to the light. And, and it was Variety that reported the story. I think Variety, for all of the high profile and all the high publicity that Daylaw's catalog has gotten over the last 
MTV was reporting about it in the early 2000s. If that were not part of the deal, we would know about it. So I have to believe this is going to happen. And uh, it's a really exciting day for hip hop. Yeah. So how does this change De La's legacy? You know, I think that it allows them to be introduced to a whole new generation because part of, you know, YouTube is, 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 is algorithm driven and recommendation driven too. But I think that the way that most um, people in younger generations find music is through the DSPs and through playlisting, recommendations, things like that. And so it puts them in front of an entire new generation. Um, that then becomes a virtuous cycle feeding, you know, merchandise sales, feeding like ticket sales, things like that. If they go on a festival run or something like that, they're back in the forefront of people's minds, old and, and young. And I think it sets off a completely new era for De La. And given their impact and the comparison we made of them potentially being a Beatles type, I've always said that 90s hip hop is the equivalent of classic rock. You know, classic rock is always going to be, in my opinion, that era from, I don't know, late 60s through mid 70s or so, you know, Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, you can run down the list of people. And I think De La actually kind of started off that classic rap um, mm. era, you know, because, you know, Eric B and Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and EPMD and artists like that, I think were at the tail end of the, the movement that LL Cool J and Run DMC started. Yeah. And I think that the artists of the 90s were a new era. And I believe that De La and those artists, you know, Tribe and the artists that kind of with their progeny kicked off that that 90s era. So they're very much part of that classic rap sound and that, that, that'll that never go old. If you like hip hop, you're gonna always wanna go back to see where it started. And for a lot of people, the journey begins there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I really love that. And, and to me in 89, you know, Three Feet really kind of sets the table for what would happen in the 90s with album making. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And one thing about De La is I've always feel like they've lived in tribe shadow. Um, because of the native tongues, I mean, tribes soared to the highest heights. And De La was like, you know, that, that middle child, you know? And what's interesting is, is by virtue of Tribe putting out its final album and getting a, a really great, authentic, happy ending to a complicated story, we know that exists. Now it's time to give De La its, its flowers, you know, its daisies. And I think that this happening with the group support um, compensated adequately, you know, properly, properly is, is, is so paramount. And the group, one thing we didn't say is with news of this acquisition, the group went on Instagram with a cryptic tweet of like, you know, stay tuned basically. So I think that only supports what you and I are talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so it's interesting because the battle for De La has been to get their music on streaming platforms. And there's another battle happening or shaping up to keep another artist's music off the platforms. And that is DMX. You know, so we talked a lot of last week about um, the, the Exodus album. And we talked mm -hmm. about Swiss Beats having a lot of music in his vaults that he has produced for X. But he has said very openly, he does not want to release that music because he wants it to only be true to X's artistic vision. And he wants, and, and unless the music is better than what he put out on Exodus, he doesn't want to do it. And so 
And he's also been very protective of X's legacy, you know, very openly talking about people coming out of the woodwork and, you know, trying to like, you know, cozy up to his legacy now, but weren't there for him when he was alive. The flip side is Dame Grease and, and Swiss produced, I don't know, um, you know, he, he produced probably 40 tracks for X, something like that, um, over the over the, the course of like yeah. seven, eight albums. What and and I think that people most th- mostly think of Swiss Beats as like his primary producer, but Dame Grease uh, is a producer who has worked with X almost exactly as much as Swiss Beats has, and apparently Dame has fifty tracks of unreleased X music that he wants to put out, but he only wants to do it with Def Jam. Uh, so that's a that's completely the opposite of Swiss's approach. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, and, and to your point, too, I, I think if X is associated with two producers, Swiss Beats and Dame Grease, and on one hand, you have Swiss, Swiss, who's become a superstar in his own right, very high profile, came with a really distinct sound we heard right away on Rough Riders Anthem and, you know, Money Cash Hose and on and on and on throughout the 90s into the 2000s. Dame was that other producer. You look at records like Get At Me, Dog, It's Going Down, um, you know, on and on, those are Dame records. And his sound wasn't quite so distinct. I mean, he was a sample-based producer. So you have a guy that doesn't have necessarily the clout, but wants to see this music through. I think it's an interesting, it's a really interesting dynamic, especially given the fact that, like like Swizz, Dame worked with X throughout his career. Um, so he put a video on Instagram this week and played some of the music I guess that he wants to put out and well I think they made some great music with DMX that clip didn't make me want it you know what I mean and I very much at that moment was like I think Swiss Beats is on to something like not everything needs to be put out but what did you think at that moment yeah you know I want to talk about their, their, their catalogs you know so Dame did Get At Me Dog um, and was involved with either produced or co-produced 13 of 19 songs on this dark and hell is hot. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a gigantic portion of that album. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and then uh, on the next album, you know, um, flesh of my flesh. Yeah. Flesh of my flesh. He only produced one track dogs for life. And then on, and then, then there was actually did three tracks, uh, four on the great depression, one on grand champ, three on year of the dog and four on undisputed. So, Steady presence throughout. Flip side, Swiss Beats, he only had one song on the Stark and Hell is Hot, but that was a monster song, you know, Rough Riders Anthem, um, arguably cemented X and probably still his biggest song to date. Um, and then, uh, you know, he had, um, he had uh, a couple songs on, on um, Flesh of My Flesh, he had 10 of 16. So it's like he and Dane traded roles on those yeah. two albums, which is interesting. Um, he had three on, and then there was X, two on The Great Depression, four on You're the Dog, two on Undisputed, and then all on Exodus. So like track for track, they're almost dead even in terms of that. In terms of volume. But yeah, as, in, terms of, in terms of volume. And um, you're right, but I mean, Swizz continued to get the hits for a while, you know, Party Up, which is a rival of, of Rough Riders Anthem in terms of the biggest joint. And, and yeah, and yeah. these are the two guys. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of an equivalent in hip hop of like an artist that worked with two producers this much in equal. 
Yeah, and to your question, so we've heard you know Lucy's from from Damon X over the last few years, and for me, none of them have resonated with me in, in the way that the, the earlier music did. Um, you know, I, w- I wasn't sure you know if that was because X wasn't uh, wasn't you know really serious about it yet, or if this, they had lost the chemistry of the magic, but it just didn't resonate with me in the same way. Uh, but now, a week later, we're starting to see that Exodus has been very polarizing to people, too. What, 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 have, what have you seen in terms of the reaction to that album? Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen people say that, you know, like you and I did, it, it's an appropriate send off. I had other people say they wish it didn't come out, that it was, you know, it was not fair to his legacy. Like as an artist who really stopped putting out traditional albums in the mid 2000s, um, let that be, you know, and just don't put this out. And I, I saw a lot of that on both sides. I really stand by what you and I said um, on our last episode. But I also have to say that since that time, it's not an album that I reach for to play right away. I, I look at it more as an association of what X was working on. I have played my, you know, my, my Griselda X joint. But um, yeah, it's, it's been extremely polarizing, which begs the question, do we want to continue to get other last words just to see? Yeah, you know, I was in a Brooklyn bodega yesterday and they had a mixtape or of and there was a DJ cutting up bath salts. Yeah. And it was on loud and it just sounded incredible. Like just like they kept running back like Jay and Nas's verses. It yeah. just was it was so dope, man. It made me feel like you know, riding through New York in the 90s with Hot 97 with the windows down and the sun just like beaming. It was like that, man. Just It just got me amped up. and Made you want to pop chains? Yeah, man. <laughs> Made me want to pop chains, stick up the bodega the whole night. Man. You know? So um, I got to go back and listen to it because yeah. I really only listened to that song and Hood Blues. Yeah. You know, the, the last four songs, you know, were deep and I got to go back and listen to those. But yeah, same thing, man. I haven't really, and now I've, I've been listening to J. Cole's album like, yeah. nonstop, but the X album hasn't had that impact on me. So I know. keep a running tab. I mean, it's one of the things that I've done as a critic that I will always do as a fan. I always keep a running tab of my 10 best joints of the year. And usually it's 15. Um, and X is very much on that list. So I don't want to detract from that album, but I thought of this headline and I put myself in Dame Grease's shoes. And I should add, you know, Dame Grease worked with the Locks. He worked with Big Pun. He is the, like the primary producer with Max B's catalog, which is interesting to me because Max B, even though he's not somebody we've covered maybe at all on Ambrosia for Heads, you know, is an artist that's influenced Kanye West, that's influenced, you know, artists that we have covered. Um, but he's been incarcerated. And Max B's name has stayed hot in the streets by flooding the game with music. And I think Dame Grease has been one of the folks behind it. And, and I should also add, Dame and Swizz have been very supportive of AFH. Um, but if I'm Dame and I've made all this music with X and Swizz puts out this album with X and says, I want this to be the last word. And you have 50 songs with an artist that you not only cared about artistically, but you were down with personally. And you know that this material especially if it's picked up by Def Jam, benefits his family, his estate, but also yours. Um, that's a really tricky position to be in when Swizz went on Breakfast Club and said, I don't want any more music after this. It has to be curated right. 
Um, so I empathize with that, or I sympathize with that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, one of the things that we've talked about are other ways of releasing music. And I look, you just mentioned classic rock. I mean, we're living in a time now where you can go buy Led Zeppelin's alternative tapes, you know, like there's massive deluxe editions where you can hear them play a song a different way or play it wrong or live. Um, and I want hip hop to be treated the same way. So even if it's not an exodus moment, do you feel there's a place or a way that that music can get in the hands of super fans or just fans, but not detract from X's legacy? Man, uh, it's complicated. I'll say a couple of things. So first of all, you know how I feel about posthumous music. I'm very, very reluctant to listen to it because I think that if it was meant to come out, it would have come out when the artist was alive. Now, Exodus is an exception because that album was done and ready and like, you know, ready to go. So it had Exodus full blessing. So I'm, 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 I'm automatically skeptical if the music has been around for some time and hasn't come out. To me, it says that it didn't kind of, you know, pass muster and the artist didn't want it there. The other thing is I feel it's very hard for me to believe that that of 50 records, all 50 are going to be bangers. Right. And we know that we know the process. Typically artists will cut 50 to hundred songs just to like, call that to 10, 12. And that's what, that's what makes the album great. So there's that. I would, uh, if Dame believes that, you know, of those, there are 10, 12, whatever that are just like legitimate DMX hits and stuff that will not only not tarnish his legacy, but add to it, then I would applaud that. But, yeah, you know, um, you got to be objective. And sometimes the objectivity comes at, in the ears of more than just one person. So I would hope that he is, you know, talking to his trusted people who are going to, you know, give him the real uh, to find out whether or not they're that, 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 that's it, you know. So, but to answer your question, I, I think a couple of things. One, from a monetization standpoint, we've talked about NFTs here, non-fungible tokens, and they become the wave over the last month or so. I think that if we were we wanted to allow people to buy these as collectors' items or as collectibles, like art pieces, yeah. and you know they chose to keep it to themselves or and you know um, you know just for their friends or whatever, I think that would be a cool way to do it. Another way to do it, and this this happens a lot with Prince, you know, and, you know, one of, if not my favorite artists ever, um, you know, he had a vault of something like 20,000 songs, something ridiculous, just an absurd uh, amount. And I'm told that he didn't want the music to come out and I've heard different things, but um, over the last year or so, they've started really opening up those vaults. The way they've done it, I think is cool in that they've done a lot of deluxe editions of albums. And so, They'll take Sign of the Times or 1999 or whatever the album may be, and they'll put out the deluxe version with uh, the album, and then they'll put music that was recorded in that era as part of those sessions. Now, that to me is cool because it's not necessarily saying listen to these songs because they're so great. It's saying listen to these to understand the evolution of the, the artistic process and what happened to make the final result. That to me as a fan is a really cool thing. And, you know, a lot of his music was released as bootlegs and stuff like that. So that's officially coming out. Um, I think that that's a, I think that's a, a tasteful way to do it that doesn't necessarily impact the legacy. But what do you think? 
I like that. I, I like, you know, today I went to the museum for the first time in a long time, but I went to the Barnes Foundation in Philly. And on one hand, you see the finished product and in another room, you might see the sketch. And I want to treat music as art, um, but I do think you need a careful lens and I really like your idea. And for me, you know, Tupac is, is my favorite artist. I don't listen to the Machiavelli bootlegs too much. I have. And there's times when I really want to understand Tupac at a certain point in his life, or I want to see what the chemistry was like between him and another MC or singer specifically. I'm glad I can access that music, but to a different extent as you, I don't, I don't lump that in with the catalog. So yeah, I, I like that answer. Now, my last question is, do you think it'll come out? Like, do you, regardless of what you think or I think, do you think it will be this Dame stuff will be put out by Def Jam in the next two or three years? So there's a saying about movie sequels. Um, and the saying is, what does the final installment in every movie series have in common? It didn't make money. It didn't make money. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that. That's dope. Yeah, it didn't make money. So, you know, there's a lot of money on the table. You know, I think people are going to look at how this performs. If Exodus performs well, I think it, I think it absolutely will come out. You know, um, I think that the Def Jam thing is a smart move because, you know, that moves toward kind of preserving the legacy. And we talked about this last week. The, the estate definitely could use it. And his estate is not in good shape. Uh, under a million dollars, rumored to be as low as $50,000. 15 kids, you know, fiance, that could help a lot of people if that music comes out and it's good. Um, the thing is, though, if it comes out and it's not good, it's not going to help financially and it will, you know, it's not going to help his legacy either. Uh, but, you know, one last question, who, who controls his musical legacy? Well, I mean, what, what's the answer to that? Is it the family? Is it Swizz? Is it like, it, can there be one person, you know, you know assuming he didn't uh, ordain someone to, to take that role? Like, who, who do you think if anyone can take that role? I like I like the idea of Swizz. I mean, the Dean family, D and Wa, um, you know, they've been behind the scenes, so I can't really speak, you know, to them. But obviously they were with X at the beginning. They were with X at the end. Um, yeah. And, and I've, I've thought a lot. You made a great comparison in our last episode of Tom Wally, you know, the executive that signed Tupac to Interscope was named, you know, the executor of his songs. And since that announcement, I don't think any Tupac music has come out. And I think that's interesting of somebody whose primary interest isn't just flooding the market and putting it out. Um, and I would like to see whoever it is be that. And, and when I saw Swizz on The Breakfast Club and we talked about it, I like that. But I also want to be fair to all sides and the family or, or Dame or somebody else could say different. But I don't want to see people running out in the street and say, oh, I got this with X. I got that with X. Because I've mentioned, we've seen that with other artists and uh, that is not good for legacy. And I think that was Swizz's point. Yeah, for sure. So I want to ask you, uh, you know, um, talking about DMX, you know, we've talked about Exodus. During X's life, some really interesting discussion, and you showed me this, happened on the shop um, with Jay-Z. You yeah. want to you want to you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. So the shop is LeBron James's show with Maverick Carter on HBO. Um, he and Mav sit down with lots of different people. Man, it could be executives like Jimmy Iovine has been on the show, John Stewart has been on the show, 
tons of athletes, Patrick Mahomes, um, you know, Anthony Davis, Drake has been on the show. It's just a real cool hang where people sit down and just discuss whatever. They'll drink wine, get a haircut. And in this episode, it was LeBron and Jay-Z were the two primary guys. And it's interesting because those two guys go way back. Apparently, Jay met LeBron when he was 16 years old. And they've done a lot of stuff. That they had this uh, party together at All-Star NBA All-Star Weekend for several years called Two Kings. It's one of the, 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 the parties that was on my bucket list that I didn't make it to. I hope it resumes and I get a chance to go at some point. But, um, you know, so these guys have a real camaraderie and respect for one another. And obviously, both are kind of at the top of the pinnacle of their games right now. Um, but Jay was on it. Um, a woman named NECA, and I, I can't pronounce her last name, um, but she's a WNBA star. She's going to be in, in, in Space Jam. Um, Bad Bunny was on it and a, a couple other people. But Jay, you know, is, you know, holding court, um, making everybody laugh and everything. But one of the questions is asked of him is, what record does he think is the best in his catalog? Now, we've heard this before. And it was interesting to me because usually he says, you know, without question, reasonable doubt. But this time he flipped it. It was a little bit different. He said that he thought that reasonable doubt was um, superior lyrically but Blueprint, the first one, uh, was right there too. And it sounded like they were alternating for him. He said, because it's just a vibe. And he talked about the creative process for that. He said that he made nine of the songs on Blueprint in a weekend. And just to think about that, now Jay typically is a guy who I think does like two weeks for a record. Like he's not a guy who's in the studio forever. He's very efficient. But nine songs and, and the blueprint songs, and I've heard that, you know, I think you wrote the story about him going back and forth between the, the studios with, with, with Kanye and Just Blaze, and, and they were competing with one another, and it just sounds like that was an amazing thing, but to hear him talk about blue, Blueprint, that was cool, you know, but the other album he talked about was 444, and he said that he is he still, to this day, has not listened to that album in full, um, because it's just too personal for him, you know, um, when it came out, that was his answer to Beyonce's Lemonade. There were allegations of infidelity. Uh, he, you know, copped to those on, on 444. Um, you know, he talked about his mom. You know, he uh, talked about his mom being gay. And that was a real thing between them because she wasn't necessarily ready for him to come out with that on record. Uh, but it ended up being a really great thing for her and for their relationship. It's really dope to see him in that element and just as free as he is but what did you think about it yeah i enjoyed it i i could have watched another hour of it um you know jay interviews are are nfts of themselves i mean we only get a few of them in any given year and to watch him with lebron and feel that camaraderie was huge and also just the listening you know and i love the fact that lebron and maverick in particular ask you know the kind of questions sometimes that you and i would want to ask jay in that kind of a setting um, and I thought that that was really good. He talked about his demo, um, one of his first recordings. And I was curious, you know, one of the things I've yet to see Dre, Jay speak specifically on is this 1986 record he put out with jazz um, under another name. And I feel like he might have been referring to that, um, but it was it was just really cool. But even what I was alluding to at the end, um, you and I spoke about it in talking and speaking of bath salts, but Jay and DMX had this 
incredible relationship, you know, of, of they had a lot of mutual people in their camps. Um, these were two like hip hop guys that also, you know, were very much immersed in street life and were staked by people um, that also, you know, had had some history in New York and they came together and battled. And I think 94 and both, you know, there's been a lot of speculation of who won and you, you hear people that were there and they have their own opinions, but there was this rivalry. And even in recent years, you had commissioned an article on Ambrosia about, you know, DMX says he won every battle against Jay-Z. Cause I think there were two or three of them who won the war, like of, you know, these two guys, like what, how is their perspective by this moment? And whereas Jay's career moves into business and all these other things, DMX, you know, had his own personal battles. So, this was the first place that I saw them that I saw Jay really address the loss of X. And he said a story that I didn't realize, which was that they boycotted the Grammys in 1998 to or 99 together because they, oh, he, now he said he boycotted it for X. Yeah. 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 He, he boycotted it for X because he had those two albums that came out, you know, flesh, my flesh, blood, my blood, and it's dark and hell is hot and wasn't nominated for either one. Two number one albums. Yeah. And so you know, Jay sat and, out and then he ended up winning best rap album that year. So his first, his first Grammy, he wasn't in attendance for. Yeah. And I, I thought that that was really interesting. And then he spoke of a tour of about the same time. I don't know if it was. It was hard knock live tour. Cause it was Ja Rule and Math and Red and, um, and X and Jay. So and I guess so. Cause Jay was the headliner and yeah. X, you know, yeah. they progressed like, you know, yeah. whoever opened, uh, you know, Red and Meth. And then you have X and he said at that time, you know, watching the way that X played with the crowd, you know, of, of just dimming the lights and the, 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 the presence, like a fighter that he came out and he would literally have people crying and then Jay had to come out. And I loved, I, I laughed in my living room, like Jay had to come out and do his biggest song at the time, which was Hard Knock Life, which although a great record is a sing songy, like catchy. And you had X that was like guttural. And what's so interesting, and I mean, that it ends on Jay said, you know, as the tour went on, he realized that he had to compete with X on another level. And Jay, and I, I love him for not tucking back his bravado. He was like, I can outwrap him. Like, no, no one's going to outwrap me. So what he started doing on that tour was dropping the beat and doing acapellas, which, you know, I've been to a bunch of Jay-Z concerts in my life. I mean, that is one of the things that Jay really offers well as a crisp delivery. And at that point, I mean, his catalog wasn't, was what, you know, wasn't what it is now. So those two things, it's just interesting to hear Jay kind of address that rivalry with, you know, still doing it in the highest honor. Yeah, no, it was really, really dope. Um, you know, he talked about how competitive they were and how they had battled one time and, you know, during the day and then later on they were on stage and DMX was like, Jay-Z, where are you at? He just never stopped going at him. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to see him talk about it. Um, so new music, new music came out. You love uh, one. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, I mean, I just want to give a, a, a stupid shout out to Lloyd Banks, man. I, um, I, I can go on record and say I've never been the biggest Lloyd Banks fan as a solo artist. I, I very much like G Unit. I always thought Fifty was one of the most charismatic artists of our time, and to watch that movement take off at the same place my you know hip-hop writing career and editing career started was phenomenal but I always thought that Lloyd's catalog um it wasn't reflective of the guy 
that and I met a lot of people over the years, especially from the tri-state that just swore by his mixtapes and said, oh, man, you know, this guy's, you know, right up there with the best punchline rappers. And I never got that. And, you know, Lloyd has taken over 10 years off of putting out an album. Um, there was that November of 2010 where everybody dropped. I don't know if you remember that, but like Kanye was in there with, you know, Beautiful Twisted Dark Fantasy and Yellow Wolf and Nicki Minaj. And Lloyd put out The Hunger for More 2. That was the last time we heard from him on an album level. And since that's a pretty dope mixtapes, though. Yeah. Facts. And, and, and we covered them on, on AFH. But, you know, that's one of those things of like, you know, the street ball game versus the NBA game. Like, what do we really. So, what would Banks' identity look like without 50 Cent? Because when you talk about, when you look at, you know, these careers, these guys are forever associated with each other. And, you know, he came out with a super hardcore hip hop album called The, Cur- the Course of the Inevitable. And it, it shows Lloyd Banks, who's a guy with a name that I feel like does not come up in, you know, making hardcore New York East Coast records. And he does just that. And he does it with a really interesting cast of contemporaries and, and guys that, um, you know, maybe looked up to him at a time. You've got Styles P, you've got Ransom, you've got Rock Marciano, Freddie Gibbs, um, Benny the Butcher, which, you know, their joint from Maldehyde is currently on our playlist. I'm just happy to see an artist that was once a platinum gold artist whose music didn't stick to my ribs come out years later completely independently um, and make the album that I feel like they wanted to make. And it felt super authentic. Um, and it was, it's just been a nice listen in the car. Yeah, no, I agree. And I listened to it in the car my first time, you know, I had, uh, I had, uh, it on Spotify so I could add songs real time to the playlist for Mount Hype. Definitely grabbed me, you know, Benny the Butcher is still on that tear. We've talked about like him having a great two-year run. It's turning into a three-year run. Yeah. Um, and, and the two of them sound great together. You know, I had a, a play on G unit, like Griselda unit. Um, it was a real nice, um, yeah, in a lot of ways, like Griselda is kind of like the, the 20 teens or 2020s version of, of G unit, you know, so it's pretty dope to see those two generations come together and falsify ransom sounded amazing on that song. So yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. So there was that, um, you know, Apollo Brown and Raheem Devon put out an album, which I think is just really interesting in that, you know, Apollo is this guy that, you know, has has made some really interesting moments in the careers of veterans like OC, Razkaz, Guilty Simpson. And he's also brought other artists to the table, you know, his groove to the left. I can't say that I remember Apollo producing an R&B album. And, um, you know, I've just, I've enjoyed checking that out too. It's a different sound for him. That's crazy. I was just listening to Raheem, older Raheem Devon today. He's got one of my favorite voices. His tone is amazing. Love the stuff he's done with Jazzy Jeff over the years. Yeah. Very substantive. You know, he's soulful and got his his, uh, his ballads, but he's also got a lot of, you know, socio-political kind of commentary in his songs too. So I'm definitely going to check that out. Apollo is one of my favorite producers and his 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 tracks are so soulful so oh, and he's he's so prolific too and uh you know we talk about g-unit um Shaw money xl who was the president of g-unit and, and kind of their their in-house a&r extraordinaire um you know he is he's in an interesting spirit where he's gone back to production you know he he had these um executive positions 
at Def Jam and I believe Capital, you know, had signed Bobby Schmurder, had signed Two Chains, had helped bring Crit to Def Jam. And, but he was a producer first and he was working with guys like Tragedy Gaddafi and Cormega early in his career. Um, and he's gone back to production and he put out an album too called Chain on the Bike Volume 2. It's got Crit on there, um, got Cormega on there on a really dope joint that um, uses wordplay of all of Biggie's songs and lyrics to like pay tribute to Biggie. Just a cool concept record, 90 seconds long. Um, you know, he's got, he's got James Fauntleroy on there. Just, just some really good, good stuff as well as his own artists. So I've been listening to that. And then, um, man, my guy Evidence is just on a tear right now. Put out another video, another single leading up to his album, The Unlearning. And it was called All of That Said um, with Boldy James. And man, that is the song that I've played 25 times this week. Yeah, man, he's one of the most consistent artists, in my opinion, of the last five plus years. You know, he just, so, it's just so good. And, you know, we got a chance to see him live. Um, his album, Whether or Not, was voted Album of the Year by AFH Readers a few years back. Well-deserved, man. Um, I love Dilated. And, you know, I think he's he's grown even since Dilated. I think he is just... And the magic that he makes with, with Alchemist, too. He's just... Phenomenal. Yeah, I agree. And I love the fact of him and Boldy. You know, Ev worked on Boldy's album, The Price of Tea in China, which we included in our best albums of 2020 list. And, I mean, these are two guys that clearly their overlap is hip-hop, you know, and, and, and probably, you know, weed. But they're different worlds. They rhyme about different things, and they sound great together. They just kick that wisdom. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot, you know, we all miss deaf jokes. You know, I say we all like hip hop fans bemoan the loss of deaf jokes. We talk about the Mad Lib years at Stone's Throw. I just want to give a shout out to Rhyme Sayers. You know, that label is it continues to get better and still put out music. And, um, you know, what they're doing with evidence as a solo artist and what they've done with him for 10 years. It's just dope to have another um label out there as we talk about the upside of, of tommy boy's legacy that takes a chance on on real hip-hop you know i know that's a cliche term but heads out there know what we mean word word um anything else on your radar any new music uh for you of note this week Nah, man i think we covered it um you know those are those are some great ones i'm still like i said in my j cole bag he just put out a new video punching the clock uh, a couple days ago it's got him in New York in a taxi just rapping, you know, uh, very straightforward, but fun. Uh, so yeah, I'm still, I'm still banging that. Real quick, just there, there, there were some albums that I want to make sure people are aware of in, in, in brief, but uh, Children of Zeus, which I have to say, you know, at Ambrosia on the website, we did a thing that you came up with called Ready or Not, which, you know, really, it was kind of an, it was a kind of a bridge into the ecosystem of the site. And a lot of really great artists came through that, you know, uh, Code of the Friend, you know, who put out an album earlier this year with Static Selectors One. I mean, there's been a host of people um, that have gone on to do really dope things. I think Chewy, um, but one of my favorite in recent years was Children of Zeus, um, this group out of UK. It's a duo and they slide between the really like R&B to hip hop beats, um, but they can slide into verse too. And uh, Jordan Commander, one of our former writers, pitched them to you and I, and we were both like, yo, thumbs up. So they just put out an album this week called Balance. And for anybody that likes singing, but likes, you know, that kind of like that blend tape feel, 
look no further. I really encourage that. And then also shout out to Peter Rosenberg, who, you know, folks know through Juan Epstein and Hot 97 and all the tremendous things in media he's done. He put out an album too with, you know, a host of, of legends. You got Method Man, Ghost, Ghostface, uh, Raekwon, Wu-Tang guys. Um, but he's also got like Rashid Chappelle on there. He's got West Side Gun on there. It's a nice cross-section crime apple of like, you know, the OGs and the emerging voices, especially in like East Coast hip hop and some Midwest stuff too. So shout out to Peter with that. Word, he's always been a supporter of us too. And, uh, you know, our tastes are very aligned. So yeah, definitely shout out to him. I want to, before we, we close with our song of the week, I want to ask you one question that I neglected to earlier. So Versus has a funny way of working. Like, you know, shout out to uh, Swizz and Tim for bringing some shine to Exodus and, and doing their Versus. If De La's catalog comes to the DSPs, I do believe there will be a versus with De La and they'll have reason to perform. Is there anybody you can think of that's a fitting opponent for the three plugs? Yeah, uh, a Tribe Club Quest. I think similar era, same era, same click, uh, you know, uh, similar approaches, different sounds, similar evolution, similar impact. Uh, if you think about when their catalogs were the most powerful, I think, you know, uh, for De La, it's 89 to like 2001, 2002, whenever um, the artificial intelligence mosaic thump drop. For Tribe, it's 1989, 90, when um, People's Instinctive Travels and Rhythm comes out up through, um, you know, the album was stressed out, I forget, Beach Rhymes in Life. And that's like 97 or so. Um, so I think that that, that, that overlap and the, the, the shared history, yeah, what they both bring to the table would make for a dope versus. What about I, you? I think that's a phenomenal answer. And I think there's a way to do it where it's clearly not competitive, but it probably is just on some song for song-ish. I would love to see that. I would just hate, if it was one of those cases where De La is overshadowed, like, and maybe that's just a fan of me. And I'm not saying that's a guarantee because their showmanship is second to none. And, but, you know, you're also dealing with uh, some sentimentality there and, and nostalgia, especially in light of Fife's passing. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. I don't think far side works. That was one I got close with and it's not going to make sense, especially to you, but one group that in terms of that overlap and in terms of, you know, two MCs plus that kind of made sense to me was Ghetto Boys, but uh, that would be different. <laughs> yeah, that would be very different. Oh, yeah. And Soldier Boy Bow Wow is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Word, man. So what's your, what's your song of the week? My song of the week is 100 Mil. Mm. I've been banging J. Cole um, and that song, I love it. I love the, the inspiration, the motivation. Uh, I love the fact that Cole is, you know, rapping that that current day flow, but making it his. Yeah, that, that song is just, it's, it's had me fired up this week. How about you? Man, I'm going to go De La. Keeping the Faith, which is probably my favorite song from them, speaks to everything that we said about their depth, their range. That was on De La Soul is Dead. And also, you know, you talk about hip hop, what has the best scratches? You know, like, Can I Kick It by Tribe? Phenomenal scratches. I'm not saying from a technical standpoint but like when you're listening and you feel the scratch keeping the faith the way it opens um I've, anytime i talk to maceo i always just like 
give him the salute. And when I spoke to Prince Paul, he said that Mace had a lot to do with the production of that record. And um, I think it's an appropriate one, given what we know. Word. Dope. Yeah, well, um, for those still around, we got a special guest coming up in the next week or two. I'm very, very excited about this one. I think you all will be too. Uh, but until then, man, you know, always a pleasure. Likewise, man. Peace. Peace.